0: Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place.
1: Merry Christmas and welcome everyone to the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion. This is episode number 28 for December 2013. My name is Scott, one of the elves here on the show, and the real holiday honchos Derek and Casey will be along in a few minutes. Today I'm coming to you live from outside of City and Colonial Bank, Hammersham Branch, This is the location for today's film, Cash on Demand, from 1962. The film stars our man Peter Cushing as the nitpicking bank manager Harry Fordyce, who has his world turned upside down by a suave, smooth-talking investigator named Hepburn, played to the hilt by Andre Morel, who arrives two days before Christmas to observe operations, but reveals that he intends to rob the bank while holding Fordyce's wife and son hostage. Cash on Demand was directed by Quentin Lawrence who was a physicist in training. He held patents for improvements in both nuclear reactor control rod technology and television imaging and transmission equipment.
2: Here we come, a-wassailing among millions of green. Here we come, a wandering so fair three, to be seen. Two, Love three. and joy come to you, and to you you're awesome too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God send you a Happy New Year.
1: Now that wonderful singing you've just heard was Father Christmas making his way up to the front of the bank. This is the same Father Christmas who appears in the opening credits for the film and the reason I'm here on location. I hope to speak to him about his experiences on Cash on Demand. Excuse me, are you the Father Christmas that was around during the filming of Cash on Demand? As I was saying,
2: I am Father Christmas, and I've been around for many, many years. Bringing holiday joy to good boys and girls throughout the land.
1: And are you the real Father Christmas?
2: You, sir. You're particular. You're expecting a lot this year, aren't you?
1: Why, yes, I am. I was very good on downplays this year. <laughs> <laughs> Ever the optimist. What? Why you? Well, back to the matter at hand. Uh, can you tell our listeners what it was like to be working with Peter Cushing and Andre Morrell?
2: All right, everyone. Here we go. A one, a two. Here's your cue. Deck the halls with bows of holly, fa the season to be jolly, fa we now, our gay apparel, fa la la the ancient you tarot, fa la Give yourselves a big hand. thank you for playing. That's how it is. Really.
1: Wait, what? Deck the halls? What does that have to do with cash on demand? It's nice and all. I kind of really liked it, but yeah, it was really nice.
2: I have something for you. Me? This is a magical jingle bell. It's for you. They might wonder what's magical about it. Well, I'll tell you. If you ring that bell over the heads of your sleeping parents on Christmas morning,
1: they'll get up earlier. I'm going to ring this over the heads of my coworkers as it's about time to start cash-on-demand coverage. try. Father Christmas, thanks for stopping by.
2: So, from all the towns and villages of the United Kingdom, we wish you all a very hallowed and gracious Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, everyone!
0: Hi, this is Ruby.
1: And I'm Hater.
0: And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire
1: Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine.
0: And they're all 1950s-style black-and-white movies.
1: The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. <laughs> you can find us at sainteuphoria.com
0: Or like us on Facebook.
1: That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. Hope you tune in. This
0: is the Habersham branch of the city and colonial bank, in a quiet provincial town where nothing ever happens. But about 10 o'clock on the morning of December the 23rd, as these doors are open for business, the most startling, terrifying two hours of this man's life will commence. I walk into this bank this
3: morning, hand a card over the counter, and immediately I'm shown in here and left alone with Fordyce. I could have stuck a gun in his ribs as soon as the door closed. If I may say so, sir, you don't look much like a gunman. What does a gunman look like? Like this? Don't do anything, Fordyce. They'll die if you move or say a word. What is it you want? Mm Just some money.
0: You'll never get away with it. unfortunate for your family if I don't. Starring Peter Cushing as the bank manager, the Martinet who lives for his work and almost dies for it. Andre Morel as Hepburn. His was the moment a thousand thieves had dreamt of. We've been
3: a year setting up this operation. There isn't the smallest detail of your branch which is not known to me. Try to remember I've only to make one of several prearranged gestures at that window, and your wife would be subjected to the most unbearable torture. Up to now, you've made
0: all the threats. I'll make only one. If anything happens to my family, I'll kill you. I swear I will.
4: Perfect plan, perfect crime, perfect suspense, perfect Christmas movie from Hammer Films. Welcome to 1951 Down Place, where we're going to talk about one of the, if not the only Christmas themed film in the entire Hammer filmography, Cash on Demand from 1962. I'm Derek, and of course, we've got Scott and Casey here. How's it going, fellas?
5: Yay, it's morning.
4: <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> So Cash On Demand, I think a lot of people have been looking forward to us talking about this film, which is essentially kind of a a low-budget two-character drama. I mean, there are a couple of other characters as well, but this is primarily a showcase for Andre Morel and our man, Peter Cushing. How, wow, did we just set a record for how long it takes for us to talk about Peter Cushing in a film? I don't know. I probably mentioned him in the intro. Oh, okay. Yeah.
5: One of these days we're going to hit that point where I can, uh, being John Malkovich, where our entire show is nothing but Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing.
4: Peter Cushing. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a movie, it's available in the, (laughs) so this is a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Really?
1: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a great episode. Mark this one down.
4: this is going to be good. Somebody take notes this is a movie that's part of the icons of suspense collection it's packaged with a number of other movies like the snorkel and these are the damned stop me when i kill i had never seen it though before we sat down to watch it and talk about it here on the show is this the first time viewing for you two you betcha yep first for me and i I never
5: even heard of it until we started talking about doing it here a year or so ago
1: yeah, I hadn't heard of it either, and I also got, you You were talking about it being a low-budget film. I think this would be an excellent
4: stage show. Well, it started life as a stage play. So Good call, so. Scott. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was based on a play by Jacques Giles, G-I-L-L-I-E-S, and... I apologize if we are mispronouncing that name, but he was a New Zealander who moved to England after World War II and kind of made his way as a playwright and then ended up doing some television work as well. And then Hammer picked it up after it was produced for television at one point.
1: Yes, actually, uh, it was on Theater 70, an episode called The Golden Side from 1960. Same uh, director, Quentin Lawrence, and one of the two stars from Cash on Demand, Andre Morel, played
4: uh, Colonel Hepburn in The Golden Side as well. You mentioned the director, Quentin Lawrence. Now, I am going through his filmography. I don't see a lot of work for Hammer with him. He was known primarily as a TV guy over in the UK, uh, did a number of shows like The Avengers... Uh, Riptide, things like that. And I also noticed that he did a movie called the man who finally died in 1963, which also stars Peter Cushing as well as our man from hell is the city, Stanley Baker. I actually just watched that for the first time the other day. Interesting kind of whodunit film in which Peter Cushing plays a a German uh, and and does not play him with that kind of cartoony German accent. that a lot of anyway. It's a good movie. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. This is not a podcast about the man who finally died. This is about catch on demand. Well, if we're uh, gonna go
1: if we're gonna go down that route, I have seen another Quentin Lawrence film because I have seen The Crawling Eye from nineteen fifty
4: eight. you know I was gonna go there. <laughs> Starring Forrest Tucker, who yep. was also in the Abominable Snowman with hey, Peter <laughs> Cushing. Earlier you were saying you hadn't even heard of the movie. You know, I was looking through uh, Hammer Films and Exhaustive Filmography by Tom Johnson and Debra DelVecchio, and they say that not only is the film seldom shown on television, it often goes unmentioned in film guides. I hadn't even heard of this movie before I picked up that DVD set, and then it, I've had that DVD set for years and just never bothered to watch it. It doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. I went and looked and... I just don't have a lot of information about the film, like the production of it, that sort of thing. It's not covered in the big Hammer resource books out there, the history of Hammer and things like that. I just couldn't find a lot of information about it. It is a stage play, or it was a stage play. It was based on a stage play first. I didn't know it had been produced as a television show a couple of years before the film. I do know that once it completed production, it did take a couple of years for it to be released in Britain, even though it came out in the U.S. first. Which, if they brought in money from the U.S. to make the film to begin with, isn't surprising. It also came out during the time that Hammer was really kind of known for the horror stuff. Hammer was trying to do a few other things here and there. But at this point, when people thought Hammer, they wanted horror. They wanted Christopher Lee. They wanted the gothic storytelling. They wanted Terrence Fisher, that sort of thing. So maybe that's kind of why it gets pushed to the back and it's harder to find information about. That said... I mean, we got two of Hammer's heavyweights here that we've already seen on the show. Uh, Andrew Morrell and Peter Cushing were in The Hound of the Baskervilles together, and, I mean, the charisma and the connection and the chemistry between these two is evident in Cash on Demand as well. Yeah, I'm surprised
1: that this film hasn't gotten more uh, promotion or, or known in, especially, you know, you go online try to find some information about it, and it's hard to find as well. But with the performances by Cushing and Morell, it seems like it would be something that a lot of people would uh, be talking about. And it's just not the case. I mean, it's, it's a good film that not too many people know about.
4: A lot of people referred to it as kind of like a Charles Dickinson, kind of story. I did read somewhere that said
1: that um, Peter Cushing's uh, Fordyce could definitely be Scrooge. And then Andre Morell's Hepburn could basically be all of the ghosts of the Christmas Past, present, and future wrapped into one.
5: Oh, yeah. I was half expecting that going into this because, you know, we talked about this when we first started talking about covering this movie last year. and We were wanting to do it around Christmas time because the movie takes place about Christmas time. I had it set in my mind going into this that it was going to be something more like that just because of the setting and whatnot. And the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes opening of that movie when we first meet Forsyth and all that. It feels like it definitely could be some kind of take on, you know, Christmas Carol and whatnot, because he is very much Scrooge. Very much Scrooge.
4: Oh, yeah, definitely.
5: To the point where, like, you know, when we first get introduced to all the tellers and the people that work in the bank, it's you know, all the employees of the bank, and they're all talking about their Christmas party, but they're making it a distinct point to say that they didn't invite Forsyth.
1: Now I want to see Peter Cushing do Scrooge and, like, Christopher Lee B. Marley and...
5: Christopher Lee wasn't the Santa Claus outside the uh bank, was he? Because <laughs> it the, sure looked and sounded like him.
1: This is this is uh Britain. That was Father Christmas. Ah. Well. I'm a Christmas expert.
5: Well lucky. <laughs> <God? laughs>
1: See, in the UK it's Father Christmas. On Mars, it's Droppo.
2: Droppo.
3: Ho, 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 everybody! Merry
2: Christmas.
1: <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. You could have. <laughs> no, I couldn't have. <laughs> no, you, you really could have. No, I should have. <laughs> That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> big uh, something difference. Like that. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. No, I don't think that was Christopher Lee's Father Christmas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we've mentioned two of the cast of Cash on Demand, that being Peter Cushing and Andrea Morrell. Should we dive into the rest of the cast? Sure. It wasn't a very big cast, so we've got the rest of the bank uh, staff including um the second in command Pearson played by Richard Vernon and he is my James Bond connection for this episode.
2: Da-da! Da-da!
1: Da-da! <laughs> Ironically he plays a banker in Goldfinger. There's a scene early on where uh, James Bond and M go to meet a banker to talk about gold bars and gold trafficking and we've got uh, Richard Vernon playing that banker. He actually gives uh, Bond a uh, bar of nazi gold
4: how hard was it for you to find your bond connection here did you like just go to the imdb and start clicking on everybody no uh, did you know this actually he
1: when i was watching the film he was very familiar to me i couldn't place where it was while i was watching the film so when i went to imdb later after watching it he was the first name i clicked on because i wanted to know where i knew him from so i didn't know it instinctively but i
5: knew that he was from something else that i had seen I just picture Scott sitting at home in a cold sweat, you know, just frantic clicking through IMDb. It's got to be here. I
4: know it's there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that actor would also appear as Colonel Matthews in the Satanic Rites of Dracula about 13, uh, about 11 years later. So he would do some more hammer work as well.
1: But he's probably the only other person has more than about five lines in the film. Yeah. Would he be your
4: Pratchett in the film? you think? Yeah. I is there s- a Pratchett? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he's the one that, that kind of gets dressed down by Cushing several times.
0: Pearson. Yes, yes, Mr. Holder? Yes, Pearson, do you expect people to write with a pen like that? Mr. Follier. Wrong? The nib's completely corroded. It obviously hasn't been cleaned or examined for weeks. This isn't a post office, you know. A customer coming into this bank has a right to expect efficiency. I'll speak to Miss Pringle, she... Uh... Who you speak to is a matter of complete indifference to me, Pearson. What concerns me is the fact that it is always I who have to discover every fiddling little misdemeanor
1: in this branch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean there's, there's one point in the movie where he almost gets uh, terminated and not the Arnold Schwarzenegger termination. <laughs>
5: Actually, I think that's more than once because that's the kind of guy that Peter Cushing's playing here. <laughs> yeah. Threatens it a couple times.
1: Yeah. But the rest of the cast, none of the other names kind of stood out to me. Did um, you find anything out about any of the other cast members
4: that you wanted to mention? Well, I mean, Edith Sharp would appear. She's Miss Pringle. She would appear in uh, Cloudburst, which I believe is another Hammer film. I didn't really find a heck of a lot more it's a pretty small cast it's an intimate story i mean it's for the most part like we said cushing and morale uh kevin stoney who played the uh, police inspector mm-hmm. would appear in doctor who at one point but in you know blake seven and a couple other tv show not a lot though i mean a lot of the people here did a lot of tv but considering quentin lawrence's background with television and The fact that this was just such a small production. I've I've even tried to look up this movie in the different location film guides, the on-location film guides that we have here for Hammer at the 1951 Down Place Library. And I can't even find this. So my guess is this was shot on a standing set somewhere or just in a building somewhere. They got who they could, who was maybe somebody who was on a holiday break making television or whatever and just shot this thing, filling out the cast with whoever they could. I'm not saying that they were bad actors or actresses. I thought they were fine. They felt real enough to me. But really, as far as the rest of the cast goes, it's primarily a Cushing-Morale vehicle. So,
1: To me, the rest of the cast seemed like they were actual people that would work in a bank. It didn't seem like they were actors to me, mm-hmm. which is probably the best thing I could say about them. I mean, it, it felt like it was an actual bank.
4: Yeah. I mean, they really didn't have – they didn't stand out. And maybe they weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of the writers on this film also wrote the screenplay for one of Casey's, well, specifically Casey's, but it's got my favorite Hammer films as well, and that would be She. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, David T. Chandler was one of the co-writers of the film and would later do the screenplay for She. The other writer was Louis Griefer, who, again, did a lot of television, including Doctor Who. Uh, in the seventies for him anyway. And I mean, it even feels like a safe play in terms of his writing and his pacing.
1: You know, I never really thought too much about it, but now that I'm thinking back on watching it, it actually could have easily been a television play. I mean, yeah, it was, but yeah. I mean, even this version could have been a television play.
5: It definitely could be a television play. And to me, while overall I thought the movie was pretty good and I did enjoy it, I think it got a little long in the tooth in the middle. And this movie clocked in at, what, an hour and 20 minutes? So I think they could have actually tightened it up pretty well to make it fit on TV in that, you know, well, in today's standard hour, it was probably different back then when it was put out. But I definitely think they probably could have tightened it up a little bit, and it would have fit pretty near perfectly into the TV format.
1: The Theater 70 uh, showing called The Golden Side, it clocked in at 70 minutes, where Cash on Demand is 84 minutes. To give you an idea yeah. of, of TV links of the of similar time.
5: So you're talking cut in 14 minutes. I think they probably could have tightened that up really well.
4: I agree with Casey. It did kind of lag a little bit in the middle for me. I get that Andre Morell is clever. And his characters figured everything out. and Yeah. You, know, you, get, you have to have those moments between him and Cushing. But it does tend to drag just a touch for me. But we are starting to get into the story itself. So do we want to kind of talk about the plot? Well, before then, I don't know if
1: I would. Uh, I want to speak on cutting it. I don't know if I would cut any of the Morrell Cushing scenes, but I would probably cut some of the beginning of the film. They really went out of their way to show how much of a taskmaster, Fordyce, Cushing's character was at the bank. And they could have cut some of that.
5: I don't know. I think the showing him as the taskmaster was kind of needed because once, well, this gets into the story discussion again, but it really helps to show highlight how much he has to go against his character and his nature. As the movie goes on, and it also helps give the, the ending some more impact as well. Well, we'll get to it, but I think the ending needed a little more impact.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, Cushing liked his, the character and giving him an opportunity to play this type of a character, especially at the beginning. He described his character as, quote, a Martinet, a man who lacks charity and warmth. In his office as a manager of the bank, he is stern, foreboding. He derives satisfaction from holding the threat of dismissal over his staff. You know, I kind of wonder if Cushing had fun playing this jerk of a a bank manager who, you know, would throw a fit over some rusty pen nibs or nibs on a (laughs) ink pen.
1: He also had lots of props to play with in his office.
4: Oh, yes, he does. You know he had a blast with that. I was going to say, that guy and his
5: keys, it was like watching a toddler with a pair of keys.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the movie opens with our traditional somebody standing outside of a business with a bell collecting donations, and it's clearly a Christmas movie right off the bat. I mean, so we are right in the middle of uh, of the spirit of the season, right? I mean, it's there's no question It says Christmas film from right off the bat.
1: Well, the, the camera starts off uh, focusing on a sign that says, you know, basically, please give, and it goes down, and you see Father Christmas there ringing a bell. The camera then follows over, and you see that um, they're really at a bank. The camera goes over to the bank sign. Then you're inside the bank and you see that it's not quite open yet. There's nobody there. And then it kind of focuses in on somebody that's changing over a calendar, changing it to, I think it's Wednesday the 23rd of December. So we've got two days before Christmas. The staff of the bank starts filing in for their daily work. They're all kind of looking around. Is he in yet? Is he? Is he? Is he here? And so you're, you're wondering who he is. Then Peter Cushing's character walks in, and immediately everybody snaps to attention. And you know, he walks in. He takes the rubbers off of his shoe and hands it to one of the tellers,
4: which was <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <It's> like, wow. <laughs> I'm like
5: that. Was, that, was <laughs> that cracked me up because the you don't realize it at the moment when the scene's happening, but when you see how for how cushy he is later as he starts getting down to business you know shortly after that you look back on it you see how well that highlights the type of character is because he comes in and he pulls the rubbers off his shoes and he's all fastidious because he's got a little bit of snow on one that his ungloved hand because he's got one glove on still and you know you see him he's working at it and, and brushing it off stuff like that then he turns to that teller at the bank and hands him the shoes muddy side up and it's like yeah screw you deal with it and the guy's got crap all over his hands and everything else i thought it was pretty funny
1: yeah (laughs) this is the the same teller that we saw just a few minutes ago uh trying to hit on one of the secretaries (laughs) showing the little little dance moves that he was doing yeah (laughs) which which was funny because there was two there's miss pringle and then i can't remember the what was her sally sally and miss pringle is is an older she's the secretary for mr fordice so you got this seller here's doing the dance and Sally's like, what is she trying to say? And Miss Pringle says, you get it? Get what? Who wants to know if you're a hep cat or a square? Do you mind? And Tracy yeah. looked at yeah. me and she said, I think Miss Pringle knows more about what's going on than, than Sally does. Yep. <laughs> I was going
5: to say the fact that Miss Pringle was able to interpret uh, what he was saying and not the other girl. I'm pretty sure she's a square.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and Cushing's character kind of berates Pringle as well.
0: Miss Pringle, do you feel it really necessary to make such a display of your Mm. popularity? I thought
2: they livened the desk up a little.
0: Banking is one of the few dignified businesses left in the world, Miss Pringle. Do you mind terribly if we keep it that way?
1: I'm sorry, sir. So she takes down her Christmas cards. Uh, Cushing eventually goes into his office, hangs his coat up, meticulously folds up his scarf, puts it up. Before he sits down, he he straightens everything out on his desk, including the picture of his wife and his kids, and then he immediately starts calling in people to start parading them.
4: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. He's going to lay into the teller first. Yes,
1: because the teller misplaced 10 pounds at one point in in his books. And Fordyce's character immediately thinks there's this whole conspiracy to steal money from the bank and He's saying, who, who am I going to trust? Because whoever initialed your uh, balance sheet that day is probably in on it. And so who initialed? Said, the teller's like, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say. And so finally, it, he, he says, is it so-and-so? And Harville says, no. Well, that leaves only two people, me or Pearson. And it wasn't me. And so you've said everything I need to know. And he he sends him away and
4: tells him to send Pearson in. And then and he's he, really kind of a jerk about it. I mean, yes. he he knows from the very beginning, he knew who signed off on it and who else was responsible for it. But he's like, I'm going to make you say it. Yeah. yeah. I want to hear you say the name. He's like, dude, well, Pearson,
1: ah, it's Pe- Christmas, man. Yes. Two days before Christmas. So then Pearson comes in and he starts basically um, saying that he's embezzling money from the
4: bank. <laughs> Because what kind of a criminal mastermind would take 10 pounds out one night and replace it the night after?
1: (laughs) And finally, I think Pearson's finally had a little bit, you know, enough because he then requests a transfer. He says, I want you to recommend my transfer to, a, I think, a London branch. And Fordyce was immediately like, I am not going to recommend your transfer. I even have doubts in my heart if you should even continue employment here. Yeah.
4: It's like, man, that's harsh. <laughs> Why do these people work here? That's how did how did this guy be a manager of this bank for ten plus years treating his staff this way?
5: Not to mention the fact, how did Pearson work for him for eleven years?
4: Yeah, I mean, well, and Pearson, he's even like, and I understand that our personalities are different, and we just don't get. A, it's like, <laughs> you're not going to appeal to this guy's sense of humanity. You know, he's not going to be. Oh yeah, you're right. We just don't see it. No. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I I really liked uh, Pearson throughout a lot of this, and I really you really kind of connect with him and feel for him and stuff like that. But that scene, I loved it because you know he's pretty much telling him he's like, I realize that you're an asshole, and we're not going to agree on anything, but (laughs) we need to come to an agreement here.
4: (laughs) Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) So he sends Pearson away, and Fordyce then goes out. And basically does a white glove test. He's testing the top of the cages to make sure there's no dust and everything. So then um, Fordyce goes back into his office. Then we get a shot back outside where it's continuing to snow. And uh, Colonel Hepburn pulls up in the sports car, parks his car, walks into the bank. He sees one of the tellers and says, is it okay if I park there? Because the teller was just opening the doors for business. And uh, he says, yeah, that's a 20-minute zone so you can only stay there 20 minutes, and he said, that's fine. Walks into the bank. Immediately um, it tells the teller that he'd like to see Mr. Fordyce. I'll
3: ask Mr. Fordyce if he'll see me for a few moments,
2: will you, Just a moment, sir.
1: Harville then calls over Pearson and gives uh, Pearson the gentleman's business card and says this man would like to see uh, Mr. Fordyce. So he goes in uh, to Mr. Fordyce's office with the business card, and he says... There's a gentleman here to see you, and immediately, not who is it, but don't you know I don't like to take visitors in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but he looks at the uh, the card and he says, "It's a Colonel Hepburn from the insurance main office or something." And he says, "Well, send him in." Pearson goes back out, gets him, and then leaves. And then this is where we really get to meet uh, Colonel Hepburn, who's this outgoing, smiling, friendly to everybody type of character and he doesn't let pearson leave right away because he tells him he says
3: just a moment
0: come in Pearson, and close the door i'm afraid i don't understand this is only you will close it Pearson.
3: i sent in my personal card because i did not wish to disclose the interests i represent in fact i am from the head office of the home and mercantile banker's
0: insurance the Herbert mercantile they ensure this branch and look after our security exactly
3: I'm on a tour of all your branches in the southwest I'm sorry to spring myself on you in this way but it's part of my job to see that people are on their toes and that the safeguard clauses in our policy are being complied with I hope you find everything in order sir well frankly Pearson I think I've caught you flat footed I don't understand oh now look yes sir I walk into this bank this morning, hand a card over the counter, and immediately I'm shown in here and left alone with Fordyce. I could have stuck a gun in his ribs as soon as the door closed. If I may say so, sir, you don't look much like a gunman. Mm, Really? You people in the provinces must stop thinking in this way. How do you know what a gunman looks like these days? Agreed, Fordyce?
0: Yes, yes, of course. Pearson, you should have inquired more thoroughly into Colonel gore business. I naturally assume that you had. I'm sorry, Mr. Fordyce.
4: I had never seen this movie before. didn't know what to expect. And I was like, oh, okay. He's from the home office. I totally bought it. Yeah.
1: I mean, he would—he yeah. he plays it so well. You know, Pearson then leaves and uh, Morell and-, and Cushing are left in the office and they're talking. And Colonel Hepburn then walks over to the window and lights a cigarette and says that he's giving a signal. And th- then the phone rings. And it's Fordyce's wife. And son they're both uh, pleading for him to do whatever he says we're in trouble do whatever he says and hepburn puts his hand over the phone and he says don't do
3: anything for us they'll die if you move or say a word
1: what are you talking
3: about it
0: let me speak to the club
3: now listen to me for us nothing will happen if you sit quite still until i finish speaking
0: what have my wife and child to do with this
3: you, there you are two be- men at your house At this moment, your wife has an electrode attached to each side of her head. If you fail to cooperate with us in any way whatever, they will pass a charge through the circuit. It is extremely painful, and I'm afraid the effects of it are permanent. She would never recover her wits.
1: And uh, Fordyce says, what do you want? He says, just some money.
4: You know, the idea that we're going to electrocute – we're going to give your wife electroshock therapy. Yeah. That was pretty uh, – For 1962, I was I was yeah. shocked.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's what I – I mean, that really stood out to me because it's like, wow, that's like supervillain level of crime it seems. Yeah.
1: This whole time, Hepburn knows he's now in control, but he's mm-hmm. still this suave, uh, friendly guy – at different points, different people come in, and he's still very friendly to them and everything. He's still making sure everyone outside of Cushing or outside of Fordyce know that I'm this bank examiner, insurance guy. You know, don't worry about me. I'm supposed to be here doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he plays it so
4: well. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a level of confidence. And I suppose if you're going to be a bank robber, that's something that you would need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, this sense of control and confidence. And, And acting, I mean, he's playing another part for everybody else, but Fordyce at this point.
5: He's really just chewing up scenery too when he takes off and starts talking. And it's pretty, it's hard to describe. It's really engrossing to watch Morell just go to work, especially when you expect that from. Oh, I mean, by now we expect that kind of a performance for Morell and whatnot. But when you see him and Cushing start to go with the, where the movie cuts off to where it's focused on nothing but Morell and Cushing. And it's it becomes something special because watching those two play off of each other is pretty great as well. What especially I, when it when everything's so minimal and it's just them talking to each other.
1: What I really enjoyed, especially the early scenes, was you could see in both of their faces if you watched them the level of control leaving Cushing or leaving Fordice and Hepburn gaining more and more confidence. And you could just wa- you almost literally see that in their faces. It was done so well. Yeah. Because, you know, when Hepburn walked in Fordyce, he was still the man, you know, this was his bank. Everyone cowered to him. You know, this guy's just somebody coming in just for, you know, some sort of an investigation. It'll be over and I'll be back to ruling the roost here. No problem and Hepburn planned this out so well. He knew everything about that bank. He knew everything about the people that worked in there. He knew the bank as well, if not better, than Fordyce did.
4: I don't think it would have worked with lesser actors in the role. I mean, they, in the roles that they had Cushing and Morrell there. I mean, that's where this movie really sparkled, and Hepburn oh, yeah. knew what they had when they cast those two.
5: Yeah, I, w- I mean, it feels pretty plain to see that they had to go look at target those two guys specifically because they knew that this whole movie was going to be primarily just focused on two people in one room. So I think they knew, I think they had to have gone through specifically looking for those guys to get it going because I agree. I don't think it would have worked with anybody else. I don't think it would have worked with Christopher Lee, for instance. Even as well as Cushing and Lee put work off of each other, I don't think Lee would have had the right personality to pull off, you know, what the Colonel was doing.
4: I agree with Casey here. I, yeah, don't, I don't I, know if this movie would have worked with Lee in that role. Or either role, really.
1: Now, he would have been good as Father Christmas Outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Outside, that was the next thing that Hepburn basically instructed Cushing. I keep using their real names. Hepburn basically instructed Fordyce to call in Pearson. And he says, what you're going to do is you're going to tell them that they need to move my car into the car park. I want this to be your idea to bring my luggage inside. I want your bank people to know that it's your idea and not mine. So, you know, basically this is what you're going to do. They call in Pearson and Hepburn says, I need you to move my car because it's in a 20-minute spot. Oh,
3: uh, by the way, Pearson, would you mind moving my car into the car park? It's in the 20-minute zone at the moment, and I hate breaking the law. I'm afraid I don't drive, sir. Oh, well, uh, perhaps somebody else?
0: Yes, of course, uh, Harville. Yes. Uh just a moment, Pearson. Uh I suppose you left nothing of value in your car, Colonel. Oh, or no, 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 in my baggage. I wonder if it'll be safe leaving it in the car park. It's unattended, you know. Hmm. I suppose it is a bit tempting. Yes, you'd better bring the luggage in here, Pearson. It's no good taking chances these days. Well, if it'll set your mind at rest, far eyes. I'll see to it, sir. Yes.
1: Now, Hepburn has got his luggage inside the office and his car moved out of the 20 minute spot. The people in the bank think that a lot of that idea was still coming from Ford Ice, still being in charge, which I thought was a stroke of, of genius you know, on Hepburn's part to make the bank tellers and everything think that Ford Ice was still in charge in there.
4: Again, I think it all goes to uh, the, the credit here goes to Morrell. I mean, I think Cushing is good, don't get me wrong. But Morell's performance as, as the colonel, as Hepburn, I mean, it just really drives everything in this movie here. And the characterization, the writing, is just fantastic.
1: As, as much as we say on the show that we're Team Cushing and, we're, and big fans of Peter Cushing, I enjoyed Andre Morell's performance in this film much more than Cushing's. Wow.
5: Yeah. Well, It's just the way it's written, though, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Because, you know, it's written so that Cushing's character, you're not supposed to like him, really, and feel for him, at least until, you know, we get towards the the finale of the movie. And Morell just does such a great job because that guy, you know, obviously that character has to be nothing but personality. Morell really, really embraces that. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, you've got to have a good villain. And, I mean, this is a good villain. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, And... I think if somebody was trying to make this movie today, it would be done kind of sloppily. There'd be a lot of guns thrown around, and maybe somebody would even get hurt or killed or whatever. It'd just be flashy. This is a more subtle, restrained, controlled type of storytelling that I really enjoyed. Well, you said guns in this film. There's only, I
1: can only remember one gun in this entire film yeah. about a bank robbery, and it's <laughs> unloaded.
5: Yeah, they lost the ammo.
4: <laughs> Don't tell Fordyce, but we lost the bullets.
5: Yeah, I know. There's another moment I felt bad for Pearson because he's like, oh, I can't believe I lost this ammo. <laughs> yeah, Hep-
1: yeah, Hepburn walks out of uh, Fordyce's office while Pearson is looking at the gun. And I love the fact that he kind of turns and aims the gun right at Hepburn, and it doesn't phase him at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're in the middle of robbing a bank and someone, you know, one of the tellers immediately <laughs> aims a gun at you, wouldn't you think, uh-oh, the jig's up, he knows about me, but he still is in that character and he just, you know, what are you doing, Pearson? <laughs> He's like, I don't have any, I'm looking for the ammunition. <laughs>
4: See, I'm just trying to show you, we do a really good job around here, <laughs> except for the whole you know, bullets thing, but Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's just what little that you're getting from other characters outside of Fordyce and Hepburn. Pearson is worried that he's going to lose his job. And now he's just been caught having to tell the bank examiner that the only gun that we have, we have no bullets for. So now he's even more kind of upset and everything. The next time we see Hepburn and Fordyce, they come back out and they're going to do a little inspection outside uh, the teller's offices and everything. And they walk up to Pearson and Pearson's doodling. He's got a pad of paper out, and he's just – he doesn't yeah. – they come up from behind him. And he's not paying attention, and Hepburn says, oh, big plans there, Pearson. <laughs> what was he doodling?
4: <laughs> Could you tell? It was kind of hard for me to make it out. It
1: looked like just he was doing, like, three-dimensional boxes, drawings. It didn't look like anything in particular to me.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Okay.
5: <laughs> but really, can you blame him? Because I could just hear his thoughts in there while dude dood- doodling. He's like, you know, screw this job, screw the Fordyce. I'm, not, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm not even going to try anymore. <laughs> I'm well, I going <laughs> just sit here and doodle all day. That's right. I mean,
1: Fordyce already wants to fire me. Now this in- bank inspector, insurance inspector, has seen me screw up. I'm done. Why am I still here? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I even
5: trying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> they go through and they they find out where the the tellers have their emergency buttons to hit the alarms. And the the second teller, Hepburn, stops and starts talking to him and uh, makes the comment that, oh, I read about you in Bank Examiners Monthly or whatever, and didn't you play second in the National Chess Tournament? He's like, Fordyce, <laughs> why didn't you tell me you've got a, a potential chess champion here on your staff? <laughs> and Fordyce is like, well, I don't really try to involve myself in the the affairs of my staff.
4: And I barely <laughs> know that guy's name. Come on. Who's, who's Pearson again? <laughs>
1: <laughs> at at one point Miss Pringle comes in with coffee for them and I loved this scene because Hepburn was like, "Oh, aren't you getting ready for your your Christmas party? Here. Let me make a donation to the to the party." And as soon as Miss Pringle leaves, he turns to Fordyce and he says, "You owe me 5 pounds for the cuz you're yeah. you're donating to the party."
5: <laughs> but that was even better too because you know that the Colonel, he's he's just like twisting the knife in Fordyke because he's like, because he knows that they didn't invite him to the party, so he's making the big deal about, oh, even I know about the party, and you know, because he brings it up to her and stuff like that in front of him. So then Fordyke's got the shock that nobody at the office invited him to the party, and then he twists it even more and says, Yeah, you're paying for part of that.
4: <laughs> he's a great villain, yeah, God, he's a great villain.
5: <laughs> oh, and another thing that I think was great. This line came in earlier on, but another thing that just showcases how great Morell is as a villain is because he's talking when he first gets to, when he first starts revealing that he's a bank robber and he's telling Ford like what he's going to do. He's talking about yeah, a lot of bank robberies have guns and shooting and people get hurt and stuff like that. And he says, "I want, I think bank robberies should go smoother. I want them to be more sociable, yes, or more social." And I'm like, "Oh, that's a great line." <laughs>
1: Well, Fordyce and Hepburn are now back into the office. And this is the one time where you see Fordyce screw up whatever guts that he has to tell Hepburn, you hurt my wife. I will kill you. And Hepburn looks at him and, and says, take off your
3: glasses, that. For what purpose what do you want? Just take them off. I can't see you now.
1: And then uh-huh, he just yeah. slaps him. Yeah. <laughs> As like, don't ever do that again to me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Put on your glasses. You look ridiculous.
1: So then, then he starts telling Fordyce, okay, this is what we're going to do next. You're going to call Pearson in here. We're going to go. Now, the the vault for the bank is literally downstairs below Fordyce's office. And they got to go through a back door that's locked down some stairs, turn off an electric eye, go into the bank vault itself, which takes two keys. It takes, Fordyce has one and Pearson has the other. So Hepburn is saying, you're going to call Pearson in here. We're going to go down under the guys that we're going to inspect the vault. You're going to tell Pearson to, to lead the way, to turn off the eye. We'll open the vault out. Once we get into the vault, you're going to send Pearson back up and have him lock the... Outer door to your office, you know, both doors, so no one can get down here. And it'll just be, you know, we can get back up to the office so we can, you know, tell them that we need to get some paperwork or something. And then tell him that if anybody comes in for a big deposit, wait till you're available. So he tells him, he says, you got to remember this whole plan. You know, the two of them talk a little bit more. And, you know, Hepburn's getting four dice riled up a lot more. And then all of a sudden he just stops him and says, repeat the plan. He struggles to make through. To say that entire plan over again, and that way he knows, Hepburn knows that Fordyce knows what to do. They do that. They call in Pearson. They go down to the vault. Uh, They open the vault door. You also find out that they've got a flashing light that if they don't close the inner gate in 30 seconds, the alarm will sound. So it gives them time to open it back up and close the gate if they mistakenly left it open. Or go in and close the gate, excuse me. So they get in there, and they start looking around, and uh, he then tells Pearson that we're going to be in here a while. And you, I need you to go back upstairs, but give me your key so we, if we need to lock it back up. Uh, and then lock the outer doors. Don't let anybody in here. So as soon as that happens, Pearson goes up, locks the doors. The two of them run upstairs to get the, all the suitcases and everything and stop immediately because there's a window washer. And I, I just love the reaction of Fordyce at this point because he figures that his wife and kid are, are in deep trouble now because something unplanned for has happened.
4: For all the research that Hepburn's done here, he apparently didn't notice that once a month somebody shows up to wash the windows. Because he well, says he's been planning this for a year, right? Yes, he'd been planning it for a year. So that was one thing I was like, well, he probably should have known. <laughs>
1: So they have to wait till the window washer finishes his work before they grab the suitcases, run back downstairs, dump out the old sheets and books that are in there, and they start with the the boxes of one pound notes, which they have tons of them, and they fill up all the suitcases, and then they get to the fivers. I'm like, why wouldn't you start with the fivers? But <laughs> that's <laughs> me. But uh, so they start packing and all the thing and they get them all filled. And, um, Colonel Hepburn has two packs of the fives and, uh, he hands them to Cushing or hands them to Fordyce and says, here the, and he's like, no, I- I'm not going to take these. And he turns to start zipping up one of the bags and Hepburn sticks them in uh, Fordyce's pocket without him knowing it. What is he tipping him for robbing the bank? What's going <laughs> 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 They carry the uh, suitcases back upstairs they close the, the bank door and immediately the light starts flashing. They forgot to close the, the gate. So, in 30 seconds, the alarms are going off. So, Fordyce is sh- struggling to get both keys out, get the doors open to get that gate closed. And in 41 seconds later, he gets it done.
5: There was, a, I thought it was interesting <laughs> here. It was subtle, but uh, they did a really good job with Cushing showing how. All of this was wearing him down physically. Yep. You could tell he's starting to get disheveled and he was getting tired and sloppy and everything else. And all that setup at the beginning of the movie showing how fastidious what he was and stuff like that helped to make that part stand out. I thought that was just interesting for something as tiny as it was.
1: But, no, well, it's but the, nobody, the acting nobody, again, I yes. mean that's
4: Yeah. You know, it's cushing. I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs>
1: But you didn't notice it took them longer than 30 seconds to open the door and close the gate? Or was Did that just it? me? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, looked, I looked at my DVD player at the time and just kind of watched the clock just because I was curious. And it was, it was over 40 seconds before he was able to get it open and get that gate closed.
4: You know, we were talking earlier, at least Casey was talking earlier about maybe trimming something out of the movie, maybe in the middle of the film. The going back for the inner gate thing, while I appreciate the extra level of suspense, maybe they could have cut that. I don't know. Just little things here and there.
5: And speaking to the cutting itself, like earlier at the beginning of the movie when we were talking about Cushing and his keys, playing with the props and whatnot, they showed him walk back and forth between those two doors locking and unlocking them like three or four times. We didn't need to see the whole sequence, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that felt like they could have cut five minutes out right there, which granted that's an exaggeration, but that's what it felt like. Well, how much farther
1: into the uh, film do we want to go?
4: Well, we don't want to spoil it. It relies on the ultimate reveal. I mean, there's a twist here and there that happens along the way, and we don't necessarily want to spoil it, you know? I agree. So maybe we need to just kind of wrap it up at at this particular point. The one thing I will say about the
1: ending, and this is my own personal opinion, it felt rushed, and it didn't fit in with the rest of the film. Okay. Okay. To be honest, I was enjoying the heck out of this film until the police showed up. The last three, four minutes of the film took it from being a film that I was considering moving into my
5: top five to one that I'm not. Wow. I, I can somewhat agree with that, especially when we, spend this enti- we spent like the last hour watching Cushing and Morrell play off of each other, which was so tight and so well done. Once we get to the, the ending and the police show up and stuff, things start to feel sloppy. Yes. In comparison.
4: The ultimate reveal in the resolution, I could see that. What I did appreciate is that when the bank staff all kind of rally around. Yes. You know, further illustrating that they're the good guys and Cushing is not. <laughs> You know, And and I did like Cushing's realization that even though he's been an unsufferable ass to these people for however long they've been working for him, they still kind of proved that they were decent human beings. And there's some stuff happening in his face and the way he kind of performs that that I really enjoyed.
1: Well, to bring this back to A Christmas Carol, it's Christmas morning and and Scrooge has seen the evils of his ways. That part I I did like. It's the whole... How the bank robbery thing kind of wrapped up? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I like what Hepburn had done. And I I don't want to say, that's the big reveal you're speaking. I thought that was ingenious and clever. But for someone that had planned so much and to have been, you know, the police be on him that quick, it was, I didn't like that. And it's hard for me to say much more without spoiling the ending.
4: No, I, I see... Where you're coming from, I hear where you're coming from, that, and I, I do agree with you that it would have been, I don't know how you would have wrapped it up though, I mean, I, I don't know how you would have changed it, because the story all does take place at the bank, and you can't really leave the bank to follow what's going on, I mean, I don't know how you would have done it differently, but I do hear where you're coming from on that, so, I don't think it's wrong, I don't think it's a bad movie per se, but it it does just kind of,
1: No, I enjoyed the movie. Don't get me wrong. It's just the ending kind of fell flat a little bit to me.
4: Yeah.
1: But again, how would you fix it, though? I mean, what you needed is you needed to have an an ultimate confrontation somehow between Fordyce and Hepburn, which you don't uh, have. That's true. That's true. The whole movie, you've got them, as he mentioned earlier, you've got the great chess player. They're playing a game of chess the whole time, and you don't have
4: a satisfying <laughs> Hepburn's playing chess Fortis is playing real hard <laughs> playing a hard game of checkers here yes. at this point. He, he doesn't really <laughs> but yeah no I hear what you're saying
1: but there's not an ultimate uh ending to their confrontation which bothered me Hepburn was playing he had all the pieces he w- he was playing Fordice, but you don't have a, I just didn't have a satisfying conclusion to that between the two of them I just the two of them somehow
5: yeah, I mean, I'm really right along there with Scott. So, I'm not exactly with Scott because we we've watched we've different <laughs> concerns early on. That's not a bad thing. Mostly, I'm with Scott. There, I like the first part, the opening part when we set up uh, how hard nosed Fordyce is and stuff like that. I think it helped uh, showcase things later on in the movie. I thought the middle stuff with I thought Cushing and Morell. War, uh, playing off each other was fantastic. When we got to the end, it felt things, it like things were got sloppy when the cops showed up. And plus, I think they, I don't know, it seems like they seemed to lose focus on how they wanted the film to end, and it seems like with everything that came out on the colonel's plan and stuff like that, it felt kind of contrived and forced a little bit when we watched everything, when he was so smooth and everything throughout the rest of the caper. So to speak, it's hard. I, I don't even know how they would finish it differently either. But I don't know. I think I was expecting some kind of. Uh, well, we don't want to go into spoilers, so I can't really say exactly what I was expecting. But I just expected it to end differently.
1: I I expected some sort of final confrontation between the two characters.
5: Uh, that and I expected, since it was Christmas time. And whatnot, in the movie is specifically set two days before Christmas and stuff like that. I expected something to be more grand and uh, I don't know, grand and uh, more happier. And I expected some kind of part of this is my focus being wrong when I go into the movie. I expected some kind of Scrooge type metamorphosis for Cushing's character because they'd made the point to show him being so hard nosed and cold to his own employees and stuff like that, I expected to see after all, after all of this that he'd been through, I expected to see him change uh, character-wise, personality-wise to become warmer and more understanding and caring.
1: Yeah, you, you needed to have the, the ending with him attending the party.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I still like the subtlety in Kushi's performance as he's realizing that his staff is on board with him I mean, because they're decent human beings, but yeah, I could see that. I mean, where you guys are coming from in terms of adding to the final? I don't know. Just have him slap Morell. You know, just something,
6: <laughs>
1: something. But I would definitely, if if someone's listening to this that has not seen this film, definitely seek it out. It, it is definitely worth watching. The performances by Morell and Cushing are amazing. Yeah, and it it's worth your time to to track this film down.
5: I would say the caveat though is don't go in expecting a Christmas movie, just expect a movie that happens at Christmas exactly so so you don't have your expectations set wrong. Mine were a little off, but it's not that I didn't enjoy it it didn't make me enjoy the movie. It was just confusing at first as things got you know with the, where your expectations are as things get rolling.
1: So does this film uh, make your top five list? I've already said what I thought.
5: No Nah, mine is not mine either.
4: Although but I did enjoy it. Yeah, and it's going to be one that we can add to the collection of genre-friendly holiday films. I mean, it's it's a Christmas movie. It ha- it's a Christmas tale. Uh, let's see. Think The Hammer Story, The Authorized History of Hammer Films refers to it as – let's see. I'm just going to read it to you. Essentially a showcase for two of the company's finest performers. It's one man's redemption narrative. It's not so far removed from it. It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story. So, I mean, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's definitely a, a friendly holiday-vibed kind of Hammer film. So I mean, I, it's something I'll probably watch again, you know, maybe next Christmas. Oh, I'm sure I'll watch it again just, just for
1: the performances of Cushing and Morell.
5: Yeah, I can see watching it again or at least ch- good
1: chunks of it. I don't know if it'll have the same impact now that I know the entire story.
4: You know, I'd be curious to go back and see if there are more tells, you know, as you're watching it. See if there's something different about Morell's performance now, you know, just to kind of really watch it from, you know, watching the actor's kind of viewpoint. You, you just really seeing if they do anything that I didn't catch the first time around.
1: Yeah, I can see that being a worthwhile watch that way.
4: Yeah. Well, unfortunately, this is one of the last types of movies like this that Hammer would do uh it, it did relatively well you know they didn't spend a lot of money on it didn't put a lot of time into it so it's not like they had to make bank to get their money back but it is one of the last times hammer would do a a non-horror film like this or a non-genre piece you know a genre period piece at all so i suppose it's a good one to go out on if they're going to stop making these kinds of movies and I may have misspoke earlier when we were talking about it being a play first, and Scott mentioned it being on television as part of, what did you say, Theater 70? Is that what it was called? Playhouse 70? Theater 70. Theater 70. That may have been the first time it appeared anywhere. Uh, I've, As Scott's been talking about the plot, I've been double-checking a couple of sources here, and it looks like perhaps it was written specifically for that as a teleplay, not necessarily as a stage play first and then done as television and then done as a film. So. We might have been a little wrong there uh, in terms of the timeline and the creation of this story. I don't know, though, because, again, not a lot of material out there. Film guides don't talk about this movie very much. So if anybody knows any different, let us know.
1: Well, I'm thinking this one could be adapted into a film, into a stage play very easily.
4: Oh, yeah, I agree.
5: Me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but definitely a good Christmas flick. I enjoyed it. I, I I would recommend it. Shall we uh, dive into some feedback?
4: Yeah. Why don't we tackle that? We got a couple of voicemails. We got one from Rod from the Nashi cast. I'd like to talk about that one first, if you guys are okay with that. Basically because he says I'm right. Um, right I know we don't get those very often, out. so yeah, we, we should talk about that. <laughs> well, we should definitely talk about how one of the podcasters was right because our second feedbacks about how somebody was wrong. Um, and that wasn't me. Yes, but that comes so. <laughs> an awful
1: bit. I'll, 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 we get that a lot because I am wrong a lot.
6: <laughs> Hello, guys. It's Rod from the NashiCast calling. I'm I, sorry I haven't called in a long time. I have been insanely busy, but that is absolutely no excuse. Have no fear. I'm still out here listening and enjoying the show. Even when I disagree with your assessment of certain Hammer films, uh, sometimes I feel that you're just wrong. But that's the nature of it. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But I love the fact that you finally got around to one of my favorites, The Devil Rides Out. I think The Devil Rides Out is an absolutely fantastic Hammer film. And as a matter of fact, I would put it in the top five of the Hammer films ever made. I think it and Quatermass in the pit and, um, well, geez, The Revenge of Frankenstein these are all top 5 hammer films in my opinion i i think that your opinion of Neville rides out might rise as you uh as you absorb it and watch it more in the future i think it's an absolutely fantastic film uh it's uh, I, I i'm curious i do want to see the special effects changes that have been made on the british release i'm very curious about that of course i have been very curious about that ever since i heard that they had done it but uh Love your discussion of the film. I, I think it's wonderful. As for Dennis Wheatley adaptations, yes, Hammer made, Hammer did three of them, two of them back to back, Lost Continent and The Devil Rides Out. I absolutely love The Lost Continent and cannot wait for you guys to eventually tackle that film. It's one of, that is also one of my favorite Hammer films. I don't know if it's top five, but it's pretty close. And, uh, it is, uh, it's a unique film. It, uh, is a, it is a a, 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 kind of, it is a kind of fantasy film along the lines of, um uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That would probably be the best uh, comparison to make. I really, really love it. The Devil of Daughter is a mixed bag, but if you've seen it, you know what I mean. I have read um, several Wheatley novels, several Dennis Wheatley novels, and I am a
4: fan of his work.
6: Of course, uh, it's very much of its time, and yes, there is some uh, racism here, there, and yon. That's just the nature of that kind of thing. Uh, I've read a number of his books, and I recommend I recommend them. If you like Edgar Rice Burroughs or H.P. Lovecraft, it's similar in um, its style, and you might get a kick out of it. Um, uh, the ones I've read, I've thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, uh, especially things like The Haunting of Toby Jug, and a few others. The Cog of Giff- Gifford Hillary was also very good. Um, the... Uh, Oh, oh, by the way, the uh, the questions you guys answered at the end of the podcast last time, especially involving, like, favorite 70s horror films, very glad to hear how many Spanish horror films cropped up on Derek's list. Derek, wonderful. Uh, the Blind Dead films, Horror Express, Let Sleeping Corpses Live, although that's a, kind of a British production, but it was directed by a Spaniard. Uh, good stuff. I completely get Completely concur. As a matter of fact, all three of your, your. So
4: he mentions the novels by Dennis Wheatley that The Devil Rides Out was based on, as well as some of the other novels that he had written. I've added the first novel of that series to my Kindle. I haven't watched it yet. You mean you I'm haven't sorry. read it yet? I haven't done that either. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I will be reading it uh, as soon as I get through the books that I have on deck right now. But uh, I, I'm very fascinated by it. I'm curious to watch it and see. You mean God read it? it? <laughs> God damn it! I'm curious to read it and see. You yeah, know my, if it does kind of strike those chords for me. You mentioned it being very Lovecraftian, and I could totally see that.
1: I believe my wife has also um, got it for her Kindle because she wanted to read it as well.
4: Or watch it. Or watch it. <laughs> <laughs> He mentioned The Lost Continent, and while we were recording the last episode, I mentioned that I was going to go watch it just because it sounds fun. I have gone back, and I have watched The Lost Continent. That movie is a trip, man. I'm excited to talk about it here on the show when we finally get around to it in, like, 2015, probably. It's a fun little movie. It's bizarre. It's odd, but it's Hammer doing this weird kind of Gulliver's Travel 20,000 Leagues Mysterious island thing. It's a bizarre little movie, but I dig it. It was a lot of fun.
1: Well, when when he said that the the closest comparison he could make was Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, that got me interested in in watching it. I have not seen it yet, mm-hmm. but I love Twenty Thousand Leagues. That's a great film. Not a Hammer film, but it's a great film.
4: So that's cool. And then. He started mentioning the Spanish films that I mentioned as part of my favorite non-Hammer 70s films. And because we just wanted him to stop while he was ahead, we went ahead and cut him off before he started disagreeing with me or whatever.
1: Well, just uh, to let people know, our voicemail does cut out at three minutes. Yeah, there's that too.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But I liked how he ended on a high note. Like, oh, Derek, you did great. Great job. I think you're awesome. You're my favorite podcaster. Or maybe that's just the version I heard. I don't know. I'm sure
1: that, you know, after that, there was probably a big butt. <laughs> that's
5: I love not it. nice <laughs> to say about Derek, Scott.
4: <laughs> or, yeah, come on, man. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear you weren't on mute. Oops. <laughs> well, Rod is the producer of the Nashi cast, which, you know, given – what the Nashie cast is about, which is the films of Paul Nashi, the Spanish horror icon. Of course, anytime we start talking about Spanish horror films, it's going to perk his ears up. And uh, you know, Paul Nashi is just an icon and great to watch. So, head over to Nashicast.blogspot.com, and you can find out more about the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi, as well as some of Rod's other projects. I believe he does the Bloody Pit of Rod. Uh, which is, is that his podcast or is that his blog? Ah, go over to com and follow the links. I'm sure you'll find it.
1: Yeah. Well,
4: <laughs> hmm. we also I, got a voicemail that I can't wait to play.
2: Hey, you guys. It's Dillow in Berlin. I've been listening since y'all started this cast, and I love it. Which is to be expected, as I'm a longtime
4: fan of MOZ, Disney Indiana, and Dad and his weird friends. However, I was shocked, really shocked last month, to hear you spreading misinformation.
1: Scott said that Charles Gray played Dr. Scott in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Everyone who is anyone knows that Charles Gray was the criminologist in Rocky Horror. Dr. Scott was played by Jonathan Everett. Now, I can understand common folks getting their Rocky references mixed up, but I never expected to hear a formerly respected newsman like Neaton nicknamed Scott spouting revisionist history.
4: And to think I trusted this man to deliver important zombie news that could be vital to my survival for years. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this shocking development. I think I'll go put on my best corset and stockings and go cuddle my feather boa until I can stop weeping. I don't know what's worse here because Scott got the names wrong. But Casey didn't correct him. And Casey's (laughs) also a fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, I'm going to excuse myself from this because... And I didn't say this last month because every time I say it around people who really like the movie, I kind of get a, oh, but I'm not a big fan of Rocky Horror. I've seen it once and that's it. I know, right? I've only seen it once. That was it. Not a big fan. So I'm claiming ignorance here. But Scott, come well, on. See, I was
5: going to say, you guys don't actually think I pay attention to you guys when we're doing this, do you?
4: Well, I, I've been watching you on Facebook this entire recording. so. <laughs> <laughs> And I was
1: about ready to offer you a, a spot on the Rocky cast.
4: Oh. But then, it's you know, a, I want... The Rocky Horror Podcast show? Yes. Yeah,
5: that's where Scott and a guest throw toast at each other for an hour and hang up.
1: Well, I, I did want to Who's say wearing to the fish stockings? Well, it's funny as you say that, because I wanted to no, let... No. I wanted to let Dillow know, I mean, not only is he going in and into his little cocoon to making him feel better. I want to let everybody know that because of the mistake that I made last uh, episode and the fact that it, you know, cash on demand was a Christmas movie. So I'm kind of here in spirit, trying to both appease the Rocky horror God. So I'm wearing red and green stockings. I've got a green corset with red straps, as tight as I can tie them around me and I am just looking fabulous hard to breathe but I've been this way the entire episode
5: <laughs> on that note we'll see you guys later
1: I think I broke Derek <laughs> I,
4: I, I think it, you did yeah I, I've got no response whatsoever <laughs> absolutely no response but I
1: am feeling fabulous
4: I' it is freeing
1: I am just I'm ready to take on the world <laughs>
4: Can we just go back to throwing toast at each other? Don't dream it, be it. <laughs>
5: uh,
4: you guys take out the show. I've got nothing here.
5: <laughs> well, what's up next week? Or not next week, next month.
4: <laughs> next year. Yeah, actually. After the good dose of brain bleach I give myself. <laughs> <laughs>
5: For our January episode, I'm actually pretty excited because I think we're covering one of the more popular Hammer flicks that I actually haven't seen yet.
1: Well, for January, since one thing we didn't mention this entire time, that December is Derek's birthday month. And uh, since we wanted to do cash on demand for um, December being close to Christmas, we let Derek move his birthday pick until January. It's and a wh- Christmas miracle. Thank is, you. Uh,
4: <laughs> and, wh- and what did you pick, Derek? the gorgon yay i did pick the gorgon right that's what i'm yes you did okay
5: (laughs) no you picked rocky horror picture show
4: you know the 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 whole image of scott and the tights and all that just i don't feel connected (laughs) anymore yeah i know we're gonna talk about the gorgon more peter Cushing goodness and somebody might get turned to stone quit thinking Um, about me in this corset Stop mentioning it.
1: <laughs> now, I haven't seen The Gorgon either, so I'm I'm looking forward to, to watching that one. And then after that, in February, it's Casey's birthday month.
5: Yay. Yay.
1: Casey, do you remember what you picked?
5: No. <laughs> yeah, actually, I... Pre-
1: <laughs> you picked the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
5: <laughs> what are we doing here? Actually, I picked for uh, my birthday month Lust for a Vampire, which I had not seen yet, and I wanted to finish off the Karnstein trilogy, so. So that's
1: that's the next two movies uh, that are up here on uh, Downplace, so if you guys have any comments about those two films, you can uh, send us an email at uh, podcast at 1951 Downplace, or you can give us a call at area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one. and remember, that's a three minute uh, length voicemail, or if you're feeling inclined, you can create your own MP3 and send it to us at the uh, podcast at nineteen fifty
4: one downplace dot com.
1: Sounds good. You can also find it's... us on Facebook and
4: Twitter. I'm still trying not to think <laughs> about Scott.
1: <laughs> I am definitely in the Christmas spirit.
4: Damn.
5: <laughs> I think they, I think we finally have another present to get Derek, other than Joni loves Chachi.
1: Hey, got mentioned. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> finally, Joni
5: Love's gotten tight. <laughs> tight.
4: Tight, tight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for as long as we've been making the Joni Love chachi jokes, just last month, I finally went in and just saved to my computer the theme song so that I had it for when it was time. Anytime we mention it here on the show, every time I've always had to go to YouTube and re download it and <laughs> double check it, I finally now have it on the system. Good. I don't know if that's good or not, actually. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening, everybody. I hope everyone has a safe and happy holiday, and uh, we will talk to you in 2014, where we will all get stoned with the—I mean, we will all get turned to stone (laughs) with the Gorgon. Merry Christmas
1: and Happy New Years from 1951 Downplace.
5: Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays.
4: Yeah.
1: I'll be glad to get out of this corset. <laughs> <laughs>
4: God damn you! <laughs>
5: Tucker would be a rough name, you know, if you're dyslexic.
4: (laughs) Did I get it wrong? No. No. (coughs) No, I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) No.
5: I would have been laughing a lot harder if you had.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Replace the F and the T. Well,
4: I got it. I just (laughs) just switched the. Is it Tucker Forest or Forest Tucker? Uh. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So earlier we were saying that uh, we maybe not...